The security clearance process is complicated. Maybe you find yourself applying for a position with the national security community and then finding yourself with questions you don't know how to answer. Maybe you've held an active security clearance for decades and now find yourself wondering if you need to report that DUI or if your bankruptcy will be flagged under the new continuous vetting program. Security clearance policies are changing and it can be hard to keep up. Whether you're a security clearance applicant, defense industry hiring manager, or government agency, it's okay to have questions. We have the answers. Welcome to Security Clearance Insecurity on Federal News Radio. Brought to you by your hosts, Lindy Kaiser of clearancejobs.com and Sean Bigley. Hi, this is Lindy Kaiser with clearancejobs.com and welcome to this episode of Security Clearance Insecurity on Federal News Radio. Radio, diversity in the security clearance process, creating better equity and inclusion across our national security workforce is a key issue and topic. And there was recently a report released by RAND about a diverse and trusted workforce examining elements that could contribute to the potential for bias and sources of inequity in national security personnel vetting. Not the first time RAND has tackled this topic and not the first time we've seen the government use some research dollars and investment to explore this topic. Really excited today to have Sina Bagley who is a senior international defense researcher with RAND Corporation, and also Jessica Page, a social scientist with RAND Corporation. They helped author this report, have been behind a lot of research around this topic. So really glad to have them with me today. Thank you so much for joining me. Thanks for having us, Lindy. RAND is known for its research across different sectors. I think folks might be surprised to know that you've done a number of studies around the security clearance process, particularly personnel vetting. Also some unexpected topics around national security, which is diversity and diversity hiring and national security. You've covered it a few different ways. Can you just kind of give me an introduction to this most recent white paper, why you're doing this research, kind of the key overarching questions you were asking? Yeah, absolutely. And thanks again for having us, Lindy. For this study, what's interesting about it is Rand's done a couple studies in this space before, as you pointed out, but they were self-generated, really. So they were Rand research that was exploratory in this topic. So this is the first time we've done a project that was actually funded by the government looking at kind of this question of the potential for bias and inequity in this, the personnel vetting process. And the government itself said they were interested in looking at the topic. Uh, the other interesting aspect of this, our prior topics uh, looked at the potential for bias and inequity when it came to race and ethnicity. That was one. And it was really mostly a, sort of a desk study, right, of documents that were out there, understanding what literature was, but it hadn't actually spoken. We didn't have interviews as part of those exploratory studies. So we hadn't talked to people in government. We didn't talk to experts in equity and, and diversity as, as part of those kind of small seed studies. So what's great about this is the government funded us to do this. Initially, we were going to just expand on that prior exploratory research on the race and ethnicity aspect. And the government, the Performance Accountability Council Program Management Office that funded this study said, no, we'd like you to actually look broader than race and ethnicity. We'd like you to look at gender, gender identity, uh, and neurodivergence, neurodivergence being examples of autism, ADD, ADHD, uh, that type of thing, to look at those components and see if there are there's a potential for bias or at least inequity and experience for candidates that fall into those realms and into those bins. And again, in some cases, those candidates fall into multiple categories. So looking at that process, looking at what those experiences might be like, and just highlighting some of those experiences and potential opportunities for the government to think about what it might do differently in the process. So that's really where this came from. We started out smaller, got more expansive and what we were looking at. 
and, and really learned some very interesting pieces of things when it came to these processes, both from how the government addresses the topic currently and what they're doing moving forward, and then how a candidate may be experiencing the process and what they've sort of reported, at least anecdotally to us when it came to some of these topics. I love that because there are those two pieces of it. You have the government angle and the candidate angle. And I always appreciate when we really dig into some research around these topics because we get to see that. And that's another piece of this. We do look at this national security, security clearance process that we have the recruiting side of it, where you know a lot about the candidate and the security clearance side of it, where you potentially know a lot about the candidate that could contribute to a lot of issues around discrimination because of those diversity statuses. The security clearance process dredges up a lot of things that the hiring process doesn't necessarily particularly want to know about. And I know your research kind of spoke to that. How do you deal with these different lanes where in the security clearance process, you're finding out information, but you're not necessarily segmenting out and knowing who's in that population? It's a great question and something we thought a lot about and talked a lot about while we were working on the project. And I think it's it's definitely a challenge to consider in the security clearance process. So on the one hand, right, some people argue that like if you're collecting this information during the process, it's going to lead to more bias, more avenues for discrimination. On the other hand, not collecting demographic information like race, gender, sexual orientation, neurodivergent status can tracking it, then it's hard to, to identify sources of, of bias or instances of discrimination that that happen. And so there is a real tension there. And and one of the things that we recommend is is trying to collect that information separately. So in a space, in a separate survey where you know, investigators may not have access to it directly, but where you could then link it to, to outcomes and experiences, you could really identify any patterns in either the outcomes of the applicants or their experiences during the, during the clearance process that may be problematic. And again, there may be unintentional things happening during the clearance process. They're collecting a lot of information about folks that's very personal. And, you know, there's a lot of space for investigators to insert personal biases inadvertently. And so just being able to keep track of that, perhaps through a separate survey, could be really helpful to identifying patterns for folks going through the process. Yeah, I just add to Jessica's point too, just because that information is not collected doesn't mean it isn't known. It isn't seen by an investigator or an adjudicator. We talk about this a bit in the report, partly because of the information that the candidate has to provide, right, in in an SF-86 form. So where you grew up or your name, your relative's names can tell, you know, about some someone's background, you say, when you talk about gender and gender identity, uh, I may have a name that is, you know, reflective of one gender, but a birth sex that was a different gender. And I may be married to someone who has a name that appears to be the same gender as me. So it's it's all of those things where this is potentially knowable in the process. So just because you're not officially collecting it doesn't mean that it's not known by the investigator and the adjudicator and couldn't potentially at least be something that they are aware of, whether again, as, as Jessica points out, in intentional or unintentionally could impact at least the experience that the individual has. And we talk about anecdotal examples of those, if not the actual adjudication of how someone goes through the process. Yeah. And so talk about like you do a big study like this, you're getting basic observations and recommendations that come out of that. So can you just kind of give an overview of what some of those recommendations and observations were? And are there any kind of low hanging fruit areas where the government could be acting or you see opportunities today? Sure. Well, one thing, you know, building off the last question is that collecting of demographic information in a separate survey or process that, again, is separate from the FS86, 
but allows for the information to be collected and bias to be tracked, whether it be intentional or unintentional bias. So that's a big issue. Another is to implement standardized and tailored training for investigators. Um, We got kind of varying reports about the type of training and the quality of training that's available. It would be great to sort of build out this area and ensure that everyone is having access, all the investigators have access to the same types of training that is, you know, updated and covers a number of potential different types of bias and that this training really be developed in conjunction with DEI experts. There's been a lot of research that's shown, for instance, that some types of DEI training work better than others. Mandatory training where you just sit people down at a computer screen may not be as effective as sort of voluntary training where people feel like they're bought into the process where management is involved. So, you know, sorting out some of those sorts of issues as the training is developed and refined to make sure that it's most effective is also helpful. And then we talk about potential revisions to the FS86 as well to improve the process. And I'll turn it over to Sina to talk a little bit more about that. Yeah. So that was one of the things we looked at is, again, the process, right? The paperwork, the guidelines, right? The structure of the security clearance process, and then the human element of the process. And so that's really where we tried to think about what can manifest in the paperwork and the process and anything that might be able to at least be reviewed in that and then the human element, which gets to some of the training that that we talked about with our recommendations. Ultimately, we understand the whole purpose of the process is to ensure someone's trustworthy and you don't want to lose that aspect of the process as you evaluate those guidelines. But at least going through that conscientious effort of saying, are there spaces where the guidelines themselves are creating an inequitable experience and potentially result for someone who otherwise would be a perfectly trustworthy candidate, but there's wiggle room because of the subjectivity of the guidelines. And as you know, the whole person concept, the process is built in to be somewhat subjective with the ultimate goal of ensuring that the person is in fact trustworthy and can remain so. It's such a human process. I mean, that's one of the things we kind of always talk about over at Clearance Jobs. And, you know, we get dinged from this from a data standpoint because they're like, you have all these people asking questions on the Clearance Jobs blog or forums. I know Rand has done some studies into that too. And like, they'll ask a question, well, they're expecting a response and you can't actually get a response, right? Because every individual case is unique and every case is studied uniquely. But we do need to apply some data sets and best practices around this because you can look if you're looking across the populations and see some trend lines. And we know that from separate surveys we've done about mental health and clearances and drug use considerations. There are there are differences there and there are some areas where more diverse applicants do come across those adjudicative guidelines differently. If you have foreign-born parents, you're going to be a a lot more scared to complete the SF-86 because of the foreign influence, foreign preference things. So there's just, there are some trend lines there. And I wanted to go back to the training piece of it because that's near and and dear to my heart, like looking at background investigators. Also, because I have written about this study when it first came out, caught off the presses. I don't, I have to, I have to like do the hot takes quick and then I get the experts on later on. And I had several background investigators message me. I think I wrote more of an op on it saying like, hey, I think one of the opportunities I see from your research is saying like, hey, let's maybe apply some better training for background investigators. Several background investigators emailed me and said, we already get training on this. And I was like, do better. But like, I, so I'm curious to see like what your thought was on that training piece of it for background investigators and some of the takeaways there. Yeah. So we do point this out in the report. There is a cognitive bias training that happens. We are not saying that there isn't a cognitive bias training, but to a person that we spoke to about training, 
there was no, including the elements responsible for training, there was no sort of dedicated training, especially sort of specific scenario-based training for what someone might encounter as an investigator. The more clarity investigators and adjudicators can have in the process, it will help the process as a whole. And that will ultimately help the candidates who are going through the process to understand what's being asked for and to have an expectation of at least fairness and equity in the process. The cross-dressing example is an instrument. We get a lot of spicy questions over at clearance jobs. And I was like, you'd be surprised what you can do if you pay your taxes. I mean, I think that is like when it comes down to it, we actually look at how the government like looks at these issues. They really are not generally, you know, making a judgment, a value judgment on your behavior. They are looking very much at rules, guidelines, outside income activities, and that's where the form catches you. So we do get into these questions where people kind of are concerned about one thing. It might be an issue, but it's probably not an issue for the reason that you think of. I thought the training piece of it was important. It made me kind of think about this process. And even in terms of, you know, what would it look like for an applicant to come into the situation more informed and empowered too? And I think putting this information out there is helpful. I know the goal is to improve the government. And I love that. But I like also want to educate applicants too. It's like, I ended up asking the government after this research report came out, I was like, it actually calls to mind, like, I've had a lot of issues where I might prefer to talk to a female background investigator, a background investigator of a different gender. What if I'm not comfortable being alone in a room with someone of the opposite sex because of the story in my narrative? Is it okay, government? Can I ask somebody into the room? I got some conflicting, you know, kind of responses to that question. But that's where some kind of like some applicant empowerment is key too, because I found like there's nothing in the policy prohibiting you from having somebody in the room with you. Now, if you bring your lawyer with you, they're probably going to ask questions. I did get told that. But if you need a friend with you, there's nothing prohibiting it in policy. So kind of thinking through, I love kind of looking at what the policy is. And if there's not a rule saying you can't, ask what you can and bring that into the conversation. It's, it's really helpful to kind of have those studies. So I thought this was important research just to even to think through that piece of it, which I had not thought of before. Yeah, that's a super interesting question. Like you're talking about sort of from the trauma perspective or reasons you might feel that the comfort level and ultimately be have it be a better interview if you're not going through that. And we've actually encountered that a lot as we're looking into this question of neurodiversity and those who are neurodivergent in the process, right? What accommodations can you ask for? What sort of pieces of things, like you said, having someone in the process, you all talked a little bit about having someone help you with the form or fill out the form for you, right? But ultimately the individual is the one that's responsible for what's in the form. But there are certain candidates where you really want that person and that background and that skill set. But it may be that there are accommodations that are warranted for the government to be able to allow. And so I know in some cases they are allowed, but it's agency specific. It's different. They're at different places when it comes to even thinking about this topic. So it's important that we do have these conversations. And I think it's heartening that at least this aspect of the government is asking those questions wherever they sort of settle in and what they might implement in the end. I'm an eternal optimist, so I like to have hope. We're all coming at the Trusted Workforce 2.0 initiative at, at different places right now. But studies like this are encouraging to me to say like we are in this process of reforming what it looks like to be a trusted worker in the government. We know that we need the biggest pool of qualified applicants, which is going to include diverse applicants with different backgrounds. Can you maybe speak to how research like this ties into this overall bigger picture effort that we're kind of behind here of 
making a better trusted workforce. Yes, absolutely. And it's, a ch- I mean, look, this is a challenge for the government, right? On one hand, they want to make sure they don't make any mistakes and let someone in that's going to decide to, you know, leak whatever, spy however, and they want to ensure that person's trusted and stays trusted. On the other hand, you want to get people in to do those jobs, right? It's really important for the national security mission space that you actually have individuals that can be trusted and can execute their jobs. So the trusted workforce 2.0, the reform effort, it seeks trying to modernize the way it collects information from individuals while improving the customer experience going through that process, right? And then adhering to principles of fairness and equity. These are the first time those have really been all articulated, I think, in one place. And so there's a lot of different moving parts to this. One is making sure that there's like better communication and information that's going out there, a two-way communication mechanism. So once you provide your information to the security clearance process, it isn't a void of information for six months and then suddenly spits out a decision, right? So I think there's a, a positive when it comes to that. And so this is another piece, I think, when we talk about this aspect of things. In the end, the goal of personnel vetting is to get trusted individuals in the door executing the national security mission, whether as a government employee or a contractor from a cleared workforce. And the government doesn't want to deter qualified candidates, some of whom have needed skill sets and cultural knowledge. And and that means they're going to come from some more diverse backgrounds or more diverse, even again, sort of intellectual perspectives on things. And so the efforts like this are intended to, what the government can do is make sure the process is well understood, that it's fair and equitable and encourages candidates to apply and go through the process rather than deters them from the process because of how complicated it will be, or again, their worry about the potential for bias or inequity, because some of these questions that are asked are deeply personal. They do get into a lot of really tough questions for the individual. But in the end, you know, if candidates can go through this process, understand what they should expect and how they should be treated and what their rights are in the process, the better the possibility will be able to grow its talent base and meet the national security needs that they have today and tomorrow as that continues to evolve. I love that. You're talking my love language because I do feel like the government's diversity numbers can kind of lie when it comes to these things because so many candidates will opt out of the process because it is intimidating to them. So kind of the more we can kind of destigmatize just the notion of, hey, we actually want diverse applicants to apply because right now you have a barrier to entry at the, at the application phase where just people aren't willing to like put their step through the door. So then they're not even considered in terms of who's making it through because we're not getting them. We're not getting the starting point. So I think research like this is important to signal like, hey, the government does care. They are looking at the process. They are saying, how can we do this better? PVQ is taking steps in the right direction. Better training for investigators will help. And then again, just getting research like this out there. So on that note, I very much appreciate your time. I appreciate you taking the time to chat with me. The work you guys do is important over there at RAND, and I certainly love to read about it. Thank you so much, Lindy. Welcome back. This is Sean Bigley and Lindy Kaiser of clearancejobs.com. We're talking with this segment about, Lindy, what I think is a pretty interesting but very rarely discussed topic, which is how to deal with classified information on the SF-86 or in your background investigation interview. And this is something that I have seen come up from time to time in my law practice or saw come up from time to time in my law practice over the 10 years that I represented security clearance holders and applicants. And the way that I would see it come up was typically one of a couple contexts. One, somebody who had foreign contacts who 
classified in some respect. For example, they had been working as some sort of intelligence community operative, and they had developed foreign contacts with you know, people who were, you know, working in foreign governments or, or things like that, the fact that they had those contacts and the fact that those people were maybe foreign government assets, it was something that in and of itself was classified. And so, you know, I would get questions sometimes from people like, well, how do I deal with this? Because the SF-86 explicitly asks about foreign contacts. It explicitly asks about foreign government contacts. So, I don't want to lie, I'm, but you know what's what's the solution? How do I thread that needle? Especially if I'm submitting this form to a different federal agency. Maybe I used to work for agency A, now I work for agency B, or I'm in cleared industry, and I used to have these contacts that were developed, you know, as a result of official business with the former agency. What do I do? And then the second context that I would sometimes see this come up in, and this was a little rarer, the applicant themselves was working or previously working in some sort of a undercover capacity or as a confidential informant of some sort. And so they would say, well, look, you know, am I allowed to say on my SF-86 that I was working for the government during this time period? Am I allowed to say that I was being paid, you know, for these services by the federal government? What's the solution here? So I would imagine, and correct me if I'm wrong, I would imagine that this is not something that typically comes up on clearance jobs because I'm assuming that, you know, people who were operating in these contexts are not likely to be posting about it. But have you ever seen this come up? Now, those secret squirrels are not trusting an internet forum with any of their information. No, it's funny. When you first talked about this, I was like, man, you know, some people just can't get over themselves because we do get some folks who ask that. If they're asking me, 99.9% of the time, I'm like, you are way overselling your job with the government. Nothing that none of that sounds classified. Answer the form honestly. You don't need to share classified information. Nobody's asking for the SAP programs that you worked on as your bona fides. And I was talking about this in the job search process too, where you can list your clearance level on a resume, but there is never any reason to list classified information on your resume. I mean, we get that question come in like, well, how do I, you know, like people can read between the lines in this industry. Trust me. If they know the agency you worked for, baseline information, you do not have to share anything classified. People can figure it out. I always say share less. And then, but the interesting one that you bring about is the foreign contacts one, because I actually did not think of that one when, when this topic came up. And I do think that there's a lot of folks, I just think you just assume that if it's a contact that you made in the course of official duties, the government's not expecting you to list that on the form. This is also probably the reason why the IC gets super skittish about the crossover, the clearance crossover between the IC and DOD. We do have this you know, system now where if you're an IC security clearance person, that's information is contained and held in scattered castles. And the reciprocity piece of it is always like DOD is very content to send your SF-86 over to the IC, no issues. IC, on the other hand, gets a little squirmy about sending what's in scattered castles and communicating that back over to the DOD system. And this exact example is probably why that is the case and why that reciprocity piece. You're going to probably have a lot, in a lot of cases where you have basically two security clearance application processes because there is some more sensitive information that IC does not want out and into a DOD system. You raise a couple interesting points here. The first one being my top line recommendation to all of my 
my clients was always, well, let's start by reading the questions carefully. What are they actually asking? And it was amazing to me how many times people would go, oh, I, I guess I didn't read carefully enough. And you're right. In many contexts, travel, for example, or foreign contacts that are made within and, and solely within the scope of official government business are not reportable and they have never been. But in many cases, there is also bleed over and you get convoluted situations where someone says, hey, I initially met this person as a result of official government business, but I was stationed in country X and then we became friends and we would, you know, go out to dinner or, you know, we had a romantic relationship that the agency didn't know about. You know, what do I do about that? A lot of scenarios that would, would sort of come up in these contexts. But they could be disposed with of simply by saying, hey, read the question more carefully. And so that's, you know, piece of advice number one. It may sound really obvious, but it's amazing, you know, how some of these questions don't get adequately parsed out. To your other point, uh, you know, this issue of kind of people self-inflating their importance to the U.S. government. I mean, yes, you are 100% right. The vast majority of people who ask this question are not and have not been working in a classified position. And I always used to say to people, look, if you were working undercover, like, you know, <laughs> it's not, a, it's not a mystery. It's not a surprise. Like, you, you know, if you are asking the question, the answer is no, you weren't. There are also people, you know, who legitimately had these questions come up and, and we would have to say to them, look, you need to do one of two things. Either A, you need to go ask agency A that you used to work for how they want you to handle this. And you need to have a paper trail to back it up. And, or you need to put an a notation on the form that says something along the lines of, I'm answering this question, no. However, I have additional information of a classified nature that is relevant to this question that I can disclose in the appropriate setting. Something along those lines to, to kind of establish a clear paper trail one way or the other that you didn't just decide subjectively that I'm not going to disclose this information and the government's not going to care. Well, they might care and there might be a reason why they want to know about it, i.e., as I said earlier, you were on official business and you were, you know, having these contacts, you know, as a result of official business, but you know, you also <laughs> were having an affair or you also were, you know, hanging out, you know, as friends and the government didn't know about that. And so you know, I don't want to freak anybody out here because 95% of the time, this is a non-issue. And in fact, you know, ironically, there, there were some rare situations that I would see where this stuff could actually be very helpful. Every once in a while, I would stumble across a case where somebody was, you know, concerned or the government was concerned that, you know, they had some sort of foreign influence issue or they had some sort of allegiance issue based on, you know, something that they were previously involved with overtly or something that, you know, they had lived overseas or something along those lines. And they would say, well, I, I was doing that because I was being directed to do that by my FBI handler or my <laughs> whatever. And so then we would say, well, okay, that's, that's relevant. Why don't we, you know, bring that to the agency's attention in a discreet way and then, you know, that would sort of solve the problem. So in the big picture, this is something that, you know, obviously impacts a, a very small group of people. But if it is something that is relevant to your situation, just 
be aware that the this is not something that lends itself to asking for forgiveness. It, you you don't want to sort of wing it and just answer the question and, and move on. At minimum, you need to have some sort of a paper trail from the security office at you know the agency that's relevant here, instructing you on how they want you to answer the question and or putting down some sort of clear you know record, some you know marker on the SF eighty six itself, saying you know. Just to be clear, there's relevant information here. It's classified. Tell me how I bring this to your attention. And then that's how it's dealt with. Thank you for listening to this episode of Security Clearance and Security. Please note, the information provided on this program is intended as general information only and should not be construed as legal advice. Consult a security clearance attorney regarding your specific situation. Have a question about the security clearance process? Interested in submitting your own topic? Have a question you'd like us to address on a future episode? drop us an email, editor at clearancejobs.com. Thank you for tuning into Security Clearance and Security with your host, Lindy Kaiser of clearancejobs.com and Sean Bigley. Join us next time as we continue to answer all the questions about security clearance careers you have, but we're too afraid to ask your security manager.